welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. So, hello from the conference to all calm and classy California core charters. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And uh, like I said, we are joining you today, together, once again, from the California State Division of the IAI Conference in beautiful and windy Riverside, California. Yeah, I, I enjoy these opportunities where we get a chance to be in the same room together. I, I think it just uh, it feels better for me. And it is bright and early in the morning instead of usually when we record in the dark recesses of the night. Uh, the sun is shining and uh, neither Glenn and I are morning people. So yeah, It's bright and early <laughs> at what, 10.30? 10.30 a.m.? For, for some people, that their day is it's almost over. over. Yeah. Uh, so, no, the, the conference has been uh, great. Um, you know, Penny and I drove all the way out here from Arizona to do uh, some of our lectures, and uh, it was great to, to meet some uh, some people. We're all wrapped up and ready to go back, and you're just about to start. Yeah, I flew in last night, and I don't know if you had heard about some of the craziness, but I was on one of the flights that happened when LAX, basically their entire uh, radar um, flight system crashed. The, and the entire Southern California, their their incoming flight and outgoing flight system crashed, and then um, Y2K man, Y2K. It, no, it basically was. <laughs> that's exactly what they predicted. <laughs> They're just 14 years off. <laughs> and uh, so on the way to LA, we we're about 45 minutes out. They diverted us to nearby Utah, <laughs> Salt Lake City, and, and we were right over Vegas too. But we're, I was on a Delta flight, so they took us to a Delta hub. And because I kept thinking, well, that wouldn't be so bad if I get grounded right. in Vegas for the night. But uh, and then we just sat on a tarmac in Salt Lake City, and then an hour or so later, they had the systems back up and running. But it caused quite a jam. I mean, they they had to ground everything, uh, leaving LAX and coming into LAX, and then all the surrounding airports in Southern Cal. So it was just complete no fly. Wow! But you made it in. Made it and, in, and uh, you uh, you you. Um invited uh, my, uh, myself and Penny uh, to go with you and some other people to uh, attend um, the Magic Castle, which was quite an experience. Uh, for those of you of people, I had never heard of it before I, you, know, you started talking about it a year or two ago, uh, to tell people about what the Magic Castle is and where it is and, and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, the Magic Castle is this world-famous kind of exclusive club in Hollywood, uh, basically, right in the heart of Hollywood, in you know, in the LA area, and it's been around for decades. But it's a, it's literally a castle. It's the Magic Castle, and it's this castle on the side of the hill, where magicians from all around the world come to see other magicians perform. You can't get in. You you can't just go there. You have to know someone or know a member uh, to get into the club. And um, it's very exclusive. A lot of times you'll see celebrities there. It's also no camera zone. You can't take pictures or video inside the club. So a lot of celebrities like that. So they will be able to go and not be, you know, everyone coming up and taking pictures with them. Uh, for some people that know things about celebrities, uh, um, 
Neil Patrick Harris, you know, Doogie Howser, <laughs> and right. he uh, he he's actually a magician as well, and he or was just now just ended uh, was the president of the Magic Castle, you know, for the the board of directors. The it's actually called the Academy of Magical Arts, and he was the uh, president for the last couple of years, but he's now the outgoing president. So it, it's a really cool venue where you can go and eat, have dinner, and then see shows of all kinds, big theaters, you know, stage productions. Comedy magic, close-up magic, card magic. I mean, just all the the club is full of performers who come from all over, from many different countries to perform there. And we we saw a few different ones last yeah. night. Yeah, no, the 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 big show was uh, was great. Dinner was fantastic, and uh, the the close-up magic kind of at the end of the night with the the guy from France. Yes, was incredible. Mind blowing. That was. The stuff he could do with with the cards was just amazing. It, it, I don't know, I'm just you're just sitting there watching it, and him, he just does it again and again and again, and uh, it was really fantastic. So thank you so much for uh, uh, you know inviting our little group of Arizona people out there to the Magic Castle. Yeah, and I'm glad you had that experience. It's uh, it's something I recommend anyone in the LA area. You know, I come out here a lot. If someone is interested, contact me, and I can try to get you into the club at some point and you know they even have like kid friendly weekends and brunches and so I brought my kids to it and they and they just love it they absolutely eat it up well uh out here in California we also this is kind of a special episode of the double podcast this is gonna be our first episode sponsored uh, by a vendor so uh, uh today's episode is brought to you all by 3m cogent and uh, we have a uh, representative from 3M Cogent here with us to talk about some of the stuff that they're doing with their company, but also about herself. And, and it's just kind of the standard Double Loop Podcast interview. Right. And we'll mix up a little bit uh, instead of, you know, when, uh, when we hear from our guests in just a moment, instead of getting into the background, we often ask the question, hey, how did you get into forensic science? You know what brought you, you know, into this into this field. What you know, what were your interests, and how did you get here? Uh, we're going to do it from the company perspective. How did 3M Cogent get into the biometric game? How did it get into forensic science? Um, and what you know, what have they brought to the table? And uh, we'll also talk about some research that uh, myself and a colleague of mine that you know, some listeners may know, Carrie Hall, she's presented on this a few times, or have used some of this recent technology. So we'll, we'll talk about the history of them, some of their their products, their mission, and then also some of the research that would be relevant to latent print examiners. All right, so welcome to the Double Loop Podcast. Uh, sitting just next to me between myself and Glenn is Teresa Wu. Hello. Hi, everybody. And uh, how long have you now worked with uh, with 3M Cogent? Um, and, and what is your position there? Exactly. Okay, so um, I joined um, 3M Cogent in uh, two thousand in June two thousand five as just a marketing specialist, and over time I grew a I, uh, I grew up there, learned uh, the job, and now I am the uh, global portfolio marketing director for the for 3M Cogent, and my job responsibility is uh, managing the. Uh, uh, product uh, portfolio development. Um, a lot of uh, making sure that what we are developing is aligned and see uh, it's we demanded or needed by the market. You know, develop what our user want, not just because we can do it. Right. And then uh, I have a secondary role is to what we call segment marketing into law enforcement. So law enforcement market is my focus area. 
Okay. Right. And did you ever anticipate that this would be what you would be doing for your career, especially for a company like this and this, basically dealing with forensic scientists? No, actually. Um, Wealthy um, European businessman was what you wanted <laughs> to be doing. No, uh, I uh, I started a. Uh, um, the the opportunity came to me two years ago, uh, 3M, um, because I was before with, at Cogen, I was more doing just uh, marketing, uh, operational marketing, strategy marketing, but on um, more like communication side, uh, making sure you know our trade shows and operation like website everything looks good and be informative. But 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 still in biometrics. Yeah, in biometrics. Right. Um, have I think about being in biometrics? I would say. I'm looking back. I think now I see. Yes, I think I'm. I this is really what I like to do. Uh, when I was younger, I was thinking I'm going to become lawyer. Mm. Like I like the legal uh, stuff. Okay. But then when I moved to France, um, the language kind of was really difficult to like write like legal French. Like just writing French is difficult, <laughs> but like writing legal French is even more, more difficult. So um, I switched gear, and then I was very good at math, and I was very good at biology. So I was thinking become a DNA analyst. That was my uh, okay. my high school project and then when like um and then we have to start doing a lot of math a lot of statistics yes <laughs> <laughs> and that come to um not nine hours of statistic a wow. week okay. it's a lot, yeah, in, in, a lot in 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 focus so i'm like maybe i'm not liking biology that much so and, and was this when you were growing up in in france, in, in france? yeah and, but before that you were you were in hong kong yes i was born in hong kong okay so um, and and then uh, I uh, end up going to business school because the business school in France is very um, it covers a lot of different fields and I'm like well since I'm not sure what I'm doing let's go to business school and then from business school I was thinking I was going to do in finance because I, I was I have a mad geeky side of me and then um, things moving and I got a very good internship with a French company that worked in biometrics mm -hmm. and that's how I started. That was 12 years ago and I never looked back. Oh, fantastic. Uh -huh. What would you say right now is the most surprising thing you've learned about dealing with latent fingerprint examiners? I mean, in the biometric world, you work with 10 print people and law enforcement, but most of our listeners happen to be probably case working latent fingerprint examiners, maybe some 10 print examiners. What's what's been the most um, interesting thing you've learned in dealing with the fingerprint people, either and let's say some ten print people or the uh, latent side? So at the beginning of my career, I don't really deal with at all with latent examination because I was in the commercial biometric side. Then when I joined Cogen and actually Cogen, the, the my world switch because at Cogen everything was about law enforcement. You come from a law enforcement. Uh, background actually, Cogen was named by a fingerprint examiner, by a latent okay. examiner, Wally Breves. Wally helped main name the company Cogent. Mm. Uh, main did not know how to was he was about to incorporate the company. He needed a name, and he was very friend with Wally Breves, who's latent examiner in Sunnyvale PD. And then uh, and Wally named Cogen because of that notion of positive identification. Okay. And right. that's whole we have a very strong so coach have a very strong tie with the latent print examinations and when I joined coach and that was the number of things I learned and first of all I think what I learned like what surprised me is that you you, you are deal, latent print is one of the most difficult biometrics that we have to deal with. It's not full profile. It's 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 partial. It's 
it's poor quality, it smudges between smudges, and then you also have depending on a lot of development techniques. So it's actually a very rich world. It's not just oh scan live scan capture and then you process and you match. It's much more. Um, I think it's a it's a really a good crossroad between forensic science, but the chemistry and the biometrics, the analyzed image processing. I think it's very rich at this at at, at this um, at this community actually. So I'm hearing uh, latent print examiners uh, difficult to handle. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a lot of difficult issues to handle. <laughs> a bunch of whiny little brats. <laughs> so uh, you talked a little bit about uh, about cogent and mm-hmm. their their ties with um, with latent print examiners and getting into that. How did that all come together with 3M as well uh, to come out with uh, their presence in the market today? So um, when we were uh, acquired by uh, 3M about a little bit over three years ago. Um, 3M uh, b- needed a biometric uh, to complete its portfolio for its uh, um, what we call document civil document issuance process, where your e your e passport, your ID document, we really need the biometrics to ensure that you're issuing a document to the person once. Um, and from there, um, when they acquire us. The, the law enforcement side sort of like the additional market that they they get into um, and from from there they fostering it because it's a new market but then we have a very strong presence we have a very good um, <laughs> we work very hard to have a good reputation so 3M is nurturing it I would say that in, in addition the very next day they acquired us the different division of 3M bought uh, our sister group now, actually we're now in the same group, uh, the electronic monitoring, the GPS anklet. Oh, okay. So um, from, I would say, serious acquisition, 3M is growing this market focus in law enforcement. So. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last time I came into the country through Canada, I think through Montreal maybe, um, I, I think I remember 3M cogent readers at uh, basically self like self-immigration where you take your passport and you go up to the thing and takes a picture, a photo picture, you read your passport mm-hmm. and there's no person you're speaking with that just asks you a series of questions and you go right on through and that's immigration. That's global entry and uh, the passport reader is uh, the 3M passport reader. Actually 3M is one of the world leader in uh, providing passport reader around all the immigration offices around the world. Wow. So well, that's Last time I was in Canada, wait in line forever just to, to talk to a, a person again. That was right. that was ten years ago, but uh, um, that is that's amazing. That's there, there was gone no line. that far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you yeah. just great. sign up for a global entry right. program, but that it's really worth it. So in in three M, we have this strong growth in in law enforcement, and uh, the commitment is there. I mean, when they offer me the opportunity to. Um, to manage the portfolio and give me this segment, I felt I was I was empowered to reach out to study um, to really come up with the next um, you know a good um, not just a good offering the offering that the 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 user needs not the later print examiner temporary examiner the manager the AFIS manager the the AFIS manager's bosses my my goal was not to just serve one but having um a global approach and I was really I would say supported by the organization to reach out and do research project that we have never done even in coding before to reach out and work with 
you know, a non-cogent customer to do research project. And that is, says a lot. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. It's, it's changing my job and I, I'm loving it. That, that is kind of what we're going to move on to next is, uh, is you've been working with, uh, you know, through uh, 3M Cogent uh, with Glenn and, uh, like you said earlier, his co- uh, colleague, Carrie Hall. And, uh, and Cedric. And Cedric, Cedric yeah. with, uh, with a few different projects. Uh, so uh, talk a little bit about that, that project you're working on with Glenn and what you guys are, are trying to find out and then what that, um, where that research might be headed. So I, uh, okay, so I can only speak of how it's happened. Uh, I would say I met Glenn was like three years ago at the IA conference. Um, and uh, we start just common, like very casual discussion. And then we happened to meet in um, Australia That's in right. another presentation was presenting. Com- completely coincidental. coincidental. I was just ha- happened to be in Australia and went, hey, I just met her recently. I remember her. So we start really just chatting. And, and then I think um, we didn't really think, think of anything. And then I think six months later, Glenn approached me. It's like, well, Teresa, I have a question for you about APHIS. Uh, to be fair, I was actually thinking about another vendor at the time. <laughs> and she yelled at me. <laughs> I did not yell at you. I convinced you that convinced maybe there's a bit better approach in, the, in all this. And and uh, was uh, was a project about where he, need you, uh, he needed a standalone APHIS. And he, he was wondering how a standalone APHIS would work any different than um, a connected APHIS, you know, one central APHIS and serving multiple workstations. And I said, in principle, not much any difference, you know, instead of a network system, you just have uh, one computer, one system doing the work. And that's how it started. And But I think it's better for Glenn to explain the, the scope of the project than I do. Okay. So, Eric, as you know, and as we've discussed for many, many times, um, we have been interested in this error rate issue, particularly on the erroneous exclusions as you teach in your classes and your workshops. Right. And we knew that this was problematic. And one of the things that um, we wanted to know was if there was a better way to detect erroneous exclusions. So um, one of the things that I, I harp on quite a bit, and it's part of the, 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 our new class with, with John Black, you know, we often talk about all these different policy changes people are doing. You know, you, I know you promote a lot of different policy changes, uh, different things that agencies can do and different things examiners can do to try to reduce erroneous exclusion rates. One of the things that I'm a big proponent of is, well, that's great, trying these different things out, but how do we know that they're really working? How do we really know that the change is, is having the desired effect, namely a reduction in error rates? So I wanted to explore concepts of how we could pull old cases and, and find out for sure if we missed one or not. And, and when I say for sure, at least be relatively confident. Because if, for example, the latent print was oriented incorrectly by the initial examiner, and now someone pulls that case and reviews it, they could make the exact same mistake that the initial examiner made because it, it, it really looks like it should be in this position, or it really looks like a finger was never searched in the palms. Right, and once one person makes that mistake, it's it's more likely that the next person would make the same mistake for the same reasons. Yeah. They have that same training and that, that same background. Yeah, and especially in an agency like uh, where I work at BCA, uh, where the images are saved digitally, so you're taking a digital scan or a digital photograph, you're going to orient it 
often in the way that you think it is. And that itself is going to have kind of a subconscious, I think, effect on the examiner to think, oh, okay, search at this. And they really have to actively tell themselves, I need to rotate this in other positions and search it in other positions. I'm sure that's something you talk about in your, your class oh, as well. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So that was the, the beginning. And what we thought about, and, and I have to give credit to Carrie here, because Carrie and I had lots of discussions over six months of lunches of how could we, how could we test this? How could we turn an APHIS into a checking system? And we kept talking about, well, the current APHIS workflow isn't going to work for us because it's a gigantic database of millions of prints. And what we really wanted was an APHIS for just a couple of people in the case. We really wanted what we kept calling a case-specific database. We wanted um, to create for each case a database of two or three people, you know, the suspect and maybe the two victims in the case. So instead of searching millions of prints, you're going to search the hell out of three sets of prints. Right, and then uh, if the, uh, the theory being that if uh, the human examiner missed it, Maybe the computer, without the bias of orientation, you, you make it search 360, maybe even flipped over, left, right, reversed. Uh, those, uh, those options are all built in there to, again, probably not foolproof, catch it every time, but uh, to, to detect some of these misses that the examiner might make. Right. Um, but, of course, the problem was we didn't have control over the APHIS. If we were to get a different kind of APHIS for this, it would have to be networked. We'd have to go through all these other issues of how, how could you get something, you know, like an APHIS system to do what you wanted to do. And then, you know, from, from a workflow standpoint, you know, being able to do, like you said, the 360 search fingers and palms and, um, you know, searching at left, right, reversal, all these different things. Um, how, how could we get that to happen? And also, when we were looking at this, we wanted to, to explore the idea of, do you need a human being to do this? So when you have something like autoencodes, you know, how good would the system be doing lights out latent print work? Now, not when you're dealing with millions of people in the database, but three people in your database. Would the lights out performance actually be so much better than it ever would be in a large database? Um, or if not lights out, what about having an intern do this? Because we used a lot of interns, and a really good way to to get management to buy into this was, hey, let's explore our cold cases, have an intern do this, so we're not taking anyone off the bench. An intern could scan all these things in and search our cold cases with you know the morgue prints, um, you know other suspects, elimination prints, etc., from victims that are in there and see if we have some missed IDs, erroneous exclusions, in our cold cases as well. And, and any time we would throw in cold case, we were thinking grant money and all these <laughs> other opportunities, right. you know, because people were interested in that. Uh, I know you've gone through and you put these in. You've gotten some, uh, some preliminary results back from introducing all this. I uh, want to kind of see, well, how so far has it been working? I, I know that it is, you know, not uh, not quite done and complete yet. There's still lots more work you want to do, but uh, maybe we can give the listeners a, a general idea of, uh, of how well things are working out so far. 
So when we ex started exploring cases, we had to find, um, we, had some, we had some restrictions. Um, first of all, since we were going to pull some old cases to run through this, they had to be cases that were essentially adjudicated. Uh, so we were looking at property crimes from 2009, so at least three years you know, old since our statute limitations on these property crimes are three years. Um, also, we, we got an intern to sanitize the cases. This was really important because when you start doing error studies within an agency, you don't want it to be a witch hunt for errors. You right. don't, you know, you you want to detect the errors from you know this clinical standpoint that we want to improve and improve the system, but we don't want necessarily, you know, even if it was one examiner that made you know three or four or five, we don't want the we, we want to improve the system going forward, not basically have it be a QA witch hunt, and that was really important. And and again, I work for a great agency that sees that buy into that and 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 understood. Okay, these are adjudicated cases. There isn't anything we can do about it anyway with right. these cases. So let's from a clinical research standpoint, let's try to detect the errors and then find out what might have happened. Well, even if you uh, you did also all of a sudden start to discover an increasing number of errors, uh, you know, your your even if your QA part department uh, didn't start this witch hunt, a much more healthy way to approach it would be to look at each one and see what the group of them together can teach your agency and your examiners about you know where an issue might be and learn from that and improve. It, it, you know, that should really be the focus of, of when these errors are discovered. Right. So along with those uh, restrictions, we also wanted a, we, we had to only pick cases that had at least one exclusion. That was obviously a requirement as well. Now, in addition to some exclusions in the case, there could be also identifications and inconclusives. Um, so we knew we were going to end up with a nice variety of different types of things. So we wanted to see that the system we basically want to see if, if we said there were exclusions, could it find a potential match? If we said identifications, would it also show the same identification or, and put that candidate there as a potential hit when, in fact, we had already reported the identification? And then same thing for inconclusives. If you reported inconclusive, could it, have actually, could it find the match? Uh, maybe you already saw it but decided consciously to be inconclusive or maybe you just never saw it all reported inconclusive out as a, a safer way of not making the exclusion error, but still not finding it and missing a potential hit. Right, exactly. All right, so we ultimately found 51 cases to work on through the summer, um, and uh, that, that's what we ran through. And a lot of this, and this is where I'm gonna come back to Teresa here in a minute, we were surprised at how long it took on certain things. The system was really good at handling all kinds of different forms, known print forms. And that was something that we had worked out with Teresa ahead of time was, look, we're working off of what's in the case file, and a lot of these are victim prints or morgue prints or things like that, where the, it was an officer in the field who, did, who was not using a standard 10 print card or a standard palm print card. And we need a system that can look at any ridge detail, including potentially toe prints, um, joints, tips, sides, any kind of major case print, any kind of friction ridge detail. I don't want the system to worry about, well, what block should it go in? Is it the number one finger? The no I don't care. Just encode ridge detail and show me on the list w what area of ridge detail you are potentially hitting. Right, because that, that makes sense. You don't, 
necessarily need to know that this Ridgedale is from the number three right middle finger. Uh, that would be more of a 10 print application where exactly. you're then later on trying to match it up to another guy's right middle finger. In this case, you just need to record all this ridge detail and like you said, just well, show me where in all this mess of ridges it matches. Yeah, and with only three or four people in the case to be looking at, you know, it'll be easy to just go back to the, the, the records and, oh, okay, so if we were try to try, try and toe prints, oh, okay, so it's in the upper tip of this, and literally the tip of, it could be the tip of a toe, a big toe, and the system would be able to handle that. Very interesting. Okay. Well, and, and, and so they had designed the system that would allow us to have all these different types of forms and records no matter what it was, and that was very important to the project. Yeah, that was one of the number ones we, we did is, okay, send us some samples so we can see how CAFIS can handle it. Um, and, and that was not actually for us, but that was not the most difficult piece because we basically create forms and we have the flexibility to create as many forms we want to to cover as many surfaces we want to capture because there was no rules in terms of record format because it's standalone I don't have to f follow the standard AFIS rule so I can have six six forms for one person and just multiple time in the in the database that so that was not the really the difficult piece that was a we f we quickly find a walk around it was just after we thought was a standard AFIS or, or it's a mini AFIS in the computer standalone world. It wasn't. It was there was a lot of subtlety adoption that we need to make to the AFIS to make the project work. Actually, yeah. I mean, initially, when Teresa and I had these conversations, uh, no, no offense, <laughs> um, but I mean, like like a typical vendor. Oh yeah, we can do that. We can do. That. Oh yeah, our system does that. And once you get it, you go. Mm, this is not exactly what I was thinking. This, and, but to to Teresa and 3M Cogent's credit, they went, okay. Well, well, what are the issues? What can we develop these workarounds? Because one of the things that we we had said was, when we get a latent print, we don't want to make any assumptions. We want to search 360, for example. And they said, yeah, we can do that. And they were right. It it could do that. Right. And then they also said that you know I we had made it clear we want to search it as a finger or a palm. We don't want to have to um, you know search it as a finger or as a palm. We want to basically just search it as either without any assumptions. And they said, yeah, we can do that. Which mm, technically they could, but it wasn't exactly how we had thought it was, it was going a bit to work. Tedious, more tedious than it was we tedious, thought. It. It exactly. Was tedious, okay. And so we had to re-encode some things or at least copy certain transactions. Uh, we also wanted to search uh, left-right image reversals, and so we, you know, again, you know, we had to do some workaround stuff and some re-encoding, and so that it was more time-consuming on that end than we thought it would be. But it was also very informative because we were able to go back to them and say, okay, here are the things you guys got to, you know, adjust to make this a more efficient workflow for exactly this type of workflow project. And talk about efficiency, certain efficiency um, workflow that we did for the large AFIS wasn't efficient, efficient for them because right. this actually was a hindrance for certain, um, we were not returning certain poor quality print because they're so poor. In, in normal AFIS environment, those would never even come on candidate list. And guys said, no, we want to see everything. So basically certain efficiency improvement we make in the, in the standard AFIS, we have to remove them for this project. So there was a lot of adoptions we are adjusting to the project. So hopefully the version two will be a bit better. Well, we've built up the suspense enough. What 
What did you find? What were the results? <laughs> <laughs> no, or after these messages? No, uh, please. What did, what did you find? Right. All right. So out of the 51 cases, there were 46 identifications that were made by examiners using our traditional process. So 46 IDs in these 51 cases. Okay. All right. Um, CAFIS, the CAFIS system we had, found 42 of them. So just using the CAFIS system and this, this technology, it, it found 42 out of the 46, meaning that they were on the candidate list. And typically, they, I think 85, 90% of the time, they're in the top position. So if you, ha if you never had an examiner looking at this case and were just looking at lists and not doing any manual searching at all, it would have found 42 out of 46. Okay. So that, that's good, but it missed a few. Right. Now, to be fair, we, you know, of course... 3M Cogent was immediately like, okay, well, we want to see those four. Let's see what it missed. Um, and and again, to be fair, we were dealing with some really poor quality knowns, especially um, because we're a state agency and we take in the evidence and then we have to give it back to the submitting agency. And we have this weird rule in Minnesota, it's a law, we're not allowed to keep the known records of these individuals that get sent in as well, but we're allowed to keep a photocopy of it or a digital copy. We're not allowed to keep the, the cards. Okay. So we were able to keep it as, as documentation in the case file. So some of these case files had like photocopies of known records that were sent in. And so as soon as you'd go to scan those in, which the system was really good at scanning and coding those instantly, um, but it's still dealing with a photocopy right. of maybe sometimes even a really light inked copy that the officer had done in the field. Got it. So, I mean, it was, understandably, you know, if it was, given the, the documentation we had in 2009 and how we were documenting the cases, you know, it, actually 42 out of 46 is awesome given what we had to work with. Oh, I understand. And then did it find any additional uh, IDs that the initial examiners had missed in their examination? And that's the kicker. It found six potential new identifications. Six that were what, I'm, what we're going to call missed opportunities, because it didn't find any erroneous exclusions. Okay. Because the examiners in the case had either been conservative or didn't, you know, didn't report an exclusion. Had the examiner, had we not been an approach to laboratory, some of these I think the examiner would have excluded. Right. And so they, but. Technically speaking, they didn't have any erroneous exclusions. But, for example, one of them was a palm print, a latent palm print, and they had declared it to be what they thought was a left palm print from the from this area in this orientation. And the, there were two or three suspects in the case that had palm prints, but the left palms weren't recorded so great. And so the examiner has said, inconclusive, need better knowns. However... CAFIS found it because the examiner had oriented it incorrectly. It was a 90-degree turn the wrong way, right. and there it was, and the right palms, clear as day, 100 minutia, and CAFIS found it instantly. Right. Yes, and then that's the kind of, of thing that, that this system would, would tend to find, something that's really clear, really obvious, but you just had it the wrong way. It just overlooked the whole thing. Yeah, so. and, and had, the, had the knowns been good, had they been good left palm prints, I'm absolutely positive the examiner would have erroneously excluded it. It would have said an exclusion. Got so it. to be fair, while there weren't any erroneous exclusions, there were some clear missed opportunities for valid identifications. So uh, these were all compar comparisons that the examiner had come to. So they were all 
all six of these were inconclusive decisions? All, all, all of them were inconclusive. And I think probably two of them were more sufficiency borderline issues, but several of them were ones that the examiner had oriented wrong or was not looking in the right spot. And just didn't see the, the correspondence that, that was there and was sufficient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think at least two, maybe a third one, you could argue, well, even if they did look at that area, okay, but, you know, it, it, it still... I think had enough minutia that clearly corresponded that I, I, in my opinion, could have been called. All right, well, let's take a quick break right now, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about how uh, we can use this system or how examiners might be able to, to use this research and this technology uh, in hopefully the near future. 3M Cogent, a wholly owned subsidiary of 3M, is a global biometric identification solution provider to governments, law enforcement agencies, and commercial enterprises. 3M Cogent provides field-proven and robust identification systems, products, and services with leading technology, accuracy, and speed. 3M Cogent's automated fingerprint and palm print identification system enables customers to process fingerprints and palm prints electronically, encode prints into searchable files, and accurately search against a database containing millions of records in seconds. For more information, please visit 3M.com slash identity management. And we're back. Thanks everyone for sticking with us on this episode of the Double Loop Podcast. We're still here with Teresa Wu from 3M Cogent and uh, talking about all this uh, this new research that they're working on with uh, with Glenn uh, on this uh, APHIS that uh, might be able to help us catch erroneous exclusions and and, and work in other ways as well. So, uh, Glenn, what was some other another point that you guys had found from this uh, this research? Well, another thing that took a while for the research and why we didn't get through as many cases was because we did every case three different ways. We did it first of all through the lights out aspect, so auto encode, no involvement whatsoever. Um, of, of the human base. Just scan, scan the latent and send it off for a search. Uh, the second way we encoded the latents uh, was with, with an intern who had two weeks of training. So she was not qualified to do comparisons, but had an understanding of how the system worked, what minutia were, little things to look for like that. And then the, the third way was with the experts encoding the latent prints. So every time we went through this, we wanted to see how effective would this be with basically a complete non-expert working the system versus someone with a little bit of training, you know, maybe a trainee or an APHIS tech or something like that versus the trained latent print expert certified latent print examiner. Um, and we were shocked, pleased, ecstatic that the, the lights out and the intern did really, really well. I mean, they, you know, if this was a system where you could not dedicate a full-time examiner to, to do this type of process, it caught, of, of the of those six new identifications, they were on the list of the, uh, the uh, I think pretty much all of them were on the list of the intern. Um, maybe one of them wasn't, and maybe one of them wasn't on the autoencode, one of the more marginal sufficiency ones, but for the most part, it, it really showed promise. So even if it um, maybe didn't perform as well in every comparison uh, across the board uh, that, uh, that that had been put through the system, uh, it did catch almost all of the errors that you were trying to detect. Exactly. Yeah, and I and to me, there are some really great benefits of this this setup. Um, for for the for the the fact that it's a standalone system and does not need to be connected to the internet. 
So there are two major things that we want we avoided. We avoided not having to deal with our sieges, our, our you know the sieges people or the sieges contracts or any of the sieges stuff. Completely end around them just because it's a laboratory standalone and no IT people. We didn't have to deal with IT. We didn't have to deal with network connectivity, security issues. It was completely standalone, and that to me was worth its weight in gold. Uh, so where where do we where are we looking for this to go next? Like what what kind of uh, application uh, might this research lead to next? Uh, actually, in practice, at an agency, right? And and that's where I think uh, Carrie's been doing a lot of the work and presenting on this because she's very interested in workflow. Where the, does this fit in the workflow? Because you could imagine agencies say, and and frankly, I I I think you can make some really good arguments, and I think this is going to turn some listeners off a little bit on the concept because it's basically saying why are we wasting all of this time doing manual comparisons yet that's the part of the job we love we love the hunt and the search yet when you get those crappy latent prints that you end up spending two three four hours searching come back the next day in the morning search another two hours go okay it's not here then give it off to a verifier who now spends four or five hours doing the exact same thing you have spent ten hours on one latent print is that really an efficient use of time? Whereas you could put it through the system, and if it's there, it's going to find it in seconds. So I, I have to ask, why are we spending all of this time doing manual comparisons? You know, do a, a few quick, easy manual comparisons, but why spend hours and hours on that? But I know the, that for some examiners, the search is the love of the job, the challenge of searching for it. Well, and then probably what some of those questions that some of those examiners might come up with next is how, how if, if, if this is implemented, how is that going to change how examiners work? Absolutely. Are they going to, to rely on that, uh, now this system too much? Mm -hmm. uh, is, it, is it basically, are all examiners then going to be just kind of downgraded to just catch the same ones that the system would catch right. and aren't going to be as good as they have been in the past to catch the tougher ones that the system would also miss. Right. So, you know, that's from the perspective of putting it up front and taking away the manual searches. Now, another way that it could be envisioned to be used as a verification. An agency says, you know what, we're not going to do 100% verification. We don't have the resources to do two people on this. So we'll verify the IDs, but we're not going to verify exclusions or inconclusives. So this, this system could be kind of a, a proxy 100% verification that you could send all your cases through, and this is your check to see if you've missed any in there. So it comes at, at that stage, in the verification stage. That's another possibility. A third option is after the case goes through all the human examiners, this is a quality assurance check either before the report goes out or after the report goes out when you're auditing cases. But at that point, the system itself, you've, you've invested all the time in the manual searches. I mean, it, it really then becomes a quality assurance tool as opposed to reduction of time and efficiency up front. And that would be uh, something that's a, probably a little more scary for examiners to hear uh, because I, I, I know that there are labs that are doing something like that, like the U.S. Army Crime Lab uh, has for a couple of years now been sending all of their exclusions uh, even after they've been after they've been verified through uh, APHIS tech to enter into the system and see if the APHIS tech can then find it and against just a limited database um, 
of people related to this case. And then when those IDs are found at that stage, pretty quality assurance kicks in. Yes, and right. pretty harsh quality assurance checks at that. Yeah, and they have an advantage that, of course, their victims and suspects are all in the database because they're all military personnel, um, which works well for them. And they're one of the few labs that could do something like that. But again, they're still competing with a larger database, you know, you know. But and of course, if you talk to them, you'll find, yeah, they're finding misses that have made it through a verification stage. Right. So, uh, Teresa and Glenn, uh, when can we expect to at least? start maybe not getting this into our lab. When can we expect to read about this uh, and with all this stuff getting out in public? Yeah, what's the plan, Teresa? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so Carrie and I uh, have wrote, co-wrote, um, co- well, Carrie wrote most of the article. I help her wrote it. Um, You're a co-author. I'm a co-author, um, but article. I'm the secondary author. Um, we wrote the article and we submitted it to a forensic magazine for publication. It will come out at the major series that will be distributed at the II conference. Perfect. So Perfect it will timing. be in the II packets. That yeah, in the little bag that you get. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So and then um, I think uh, Karen Glenn's going to present the research at the II as well. We are presenting, yes. I think and we've got a 30-minute presentation uh, maybe on Wednesday. Okay. Or maybe... No. Yeah, maybe, or maybe it was Monday. Maybe it is Monday. It's, no, I take that back. It's Monday afternoon. I think we have a 30-minute presentation. And, and also, I think you guys are going to publish a more detailed research site. The, exactly. the one we did in Forensic Magazine is more like a summary. Right. Um, and um, for those that did not listen to the podcast, they should. <laughs> um, and then uh, um, I th- and then we will, at the II, we will present... Um, I basically an uh, example of the KFIS that we de- the version two of the KFIS that we developed based on the the, fi- the finding and the, the feedback we got from phase one. Right. Uh, then we will uh, present it and the new features that we will propose and the adaptation we made to the KFIS well, at the fantastic. II. Mm-hmm. So that'll be the big launch party. Oh, y- debut, you know. Debut, <laughs> debut, debut yes. yes. <laughs> the the KFIS, KFIS debutante. Yes. Um, so, Eric, uh, if you would be so kind to tell the listeners, uh, as we move into the next phase of testing this case-specific APHIS database, um, you're going to get involved with some of the research. Yes. You know, uh, uh, you know, Glenn, you and I have talked about this for a, a little while now, of this concept, uh, and then uh, you, know, you and Carrie had asked me to, to approach my management and see what we could uh, contribute to, uh, to this. So we went through and and pulled out, uh, since you know, we've got a few of these uh, pretty well-documented erroneous exclusions from our lab, and, and Penny and I teach about this uh, uh, you know, quite a bit, and, and showed these examples that, uh, that we found in our lab, we wanted to then take, take these and, and put them through the, the system to see if, if a, a known erroneous exclusion that was discovered during verification, um, if that would have been detected also by the system. So there's a, uh, I think there's nine of those examples in amongst the rest of the case that 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 was surrounding that example. So, so we have the potential also to find other erroneous exclusions that were could have been missed in the case. Right? Exactly. So that the case with the erroneous exclusion also has all the other uh, latents that were uh, were involved in it. And in addition, we also pulled about another thirty or so random cases from just, you know a couple of years ago. Uh, that where no erroneous exclusions were um, were detected during verification 
to see if maybe there was other stuff in there that we can find as well. Right. So ultimately what we're describing is kind of that third use of this CAFIS system as after the reports have gone out, a check. In this aspect, we're just doing it from a research standpoint. So, and, and this is what I was talking about earlier where there could be some really cool use of this um, in cold cases where exactly as you're describing, you could get a bunch of old cold cases and have someone enter and, and review those cases and it wouldn't even have to necessarily even be an expert. You could have an intern do this and from the perspective of, hey, we want to buy one of these CAFA systems and I don't know if where you guys even thought about pricing yet. And it goes to the head of the lab and they have to look at the, the price of it. We kept thinking, wow, if you could tie this into a cold case grant, this is how you could get a system like this because a, a cold case grant is the one thing that Coverdell and some of these other monies available or NIJ money, this is exactly the type of way that you get that money to, re, you know, to, to use this on cold cases but other active type cases. And I also want to say with this research what we have found is that in the in the, the print that you got from from uh, the from the print of the victims, those are really poor poor quality print, and really push the system to the next level. And I, we, we when we look at those misses, we like, well, yes, the photocopy is a problem, but it does uh, give us um, opportunity to improve the accuracy as well. So it's really beneficial in both in both directions. Oh, that's great. No, yeah, we're we're really excited to to now look and see uh, whether or not. The, those those samples that we are providing, you know, could be detected. If there's anything else in there that we're missing, uh, it's, you know, it's a good check of, of our system uh, uh, to see how our lab is performing, and also I think a good check of the the new technology to see if it can uh, at least equal, if not outperform, uh, our verification step as it currently exists. Right, we've talked a lot about uh, the research and this this uh, this new application of APHIS for specific cases. Uh, what other uh, what other projects might uh, 3M Cogent and yourself be working on in the near future? Um, the another major focus we have is facial recognition is uh, getting really a lot of attention. You know, so we are working on improving the accuracy. And so latent print or latent face prints that are found at crime scenes. That's that's what we can, <laughs> can expect to become latent face print examiners. <laughs> Ooh, latent, latent eyeballs too. <laughs> Your second job, you know. Um, and uh, of course, my uh, mobile handheld, bringing the biometric to, to you know the to other police uh, forces and um, personnel in. in not just the office, you know, outside. Um, and then uh, we are also looking at other applications or other uses of uh, uh, inside the AFER, so like the statistical model that we are really, we are, we, we have been looking into. So statistics, that of course that's of interest to me, but you were spending eight to ten hours a day doing s statistic homework, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, going back to my... Uh, are, are you developing the statistical model? No, 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 not me. No, thank God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no can, you, can you talk about that a little bit? And that has an application to the, the latent fingerprint side of that. Correct, house. correct. Yeah. Um, so actually, you know, about the same time uh, we were talking about the Case CAFIS project, um, we, um, our user group um, conference have invited Cedric to speak. Cedric Newman. Cedric Newman, yes, uh, which you guys all know well. Um, and uh, when he presented his uh, NIJ research to us, what we saw was 
um, and actually he approached us and said, well, I need to, for my next phase of the project, I need an APHIS. Can you help us? Can, can you help me, actually, not um, to provide this APHIS so I can get the data to validate the model? Because the whole point at that two or three years ago, the validation was a question because um, um, wherever it was done before was with FSS, this dissolving was gone away. And so we... I mean, again, I have to give credit to 3M. It was something that I would say before, wouldn't think something we would do. And 3M was very open to that and was very supportive. I got really a good support from the 3M management to say, why not? Let's reach out, let's do something different. Um, and uh, we provided um, a special APHIS to Cedric so he can validate his model. Yeah, and, and I know in many talks with Cedric, one of the nice things about having the forensic science service in the UK working on the model was this was a long-term investment in research and validation of a model. And then it was very disappointing and disheartening to see when they went under, the model basically disappeared. No one knows what happened to it. And so he had to start from scratch. And what he was really clear about, and, and is so frustrating in this country, is that he didn't want to go to NIJ with NIJ funding something because there's no long-term investment. That at best, you get one year of research, and not even that, it's going to be six months. Um, you know, six months of hardcore investment in it, and then and then your grant's over, and then you know they'll never renew for a second period. So I know it was important to find a like-minded individual with a long-term vision and goal and sponsorship, and I think this is where 3M Cogent saw this opportunity. Yes, we. It was something new. It was I would say internally we have our own um, discussion, and the really final push was. We saw as opportunity or as a, as a way to strengthen the discipline. The, the, the data that, uh, the first data that Cedric presented at the user conference was validating the knowledge and the, ex, um, and, or the common knowledge of the frequent examiners about, you know, more munition correspondence, you know, you are stronger, your, your matrices. And we saw that in APHIS too. So we saw a lot of uh, opportunities to, um, to integrate APHIS in a different ways. And, and uh, so we started with the validation projects and then uh, we, he presented last last uh, last year, the II, and now we're in the second phase of the project where we are applying the statistical model uh, in a different way. Actually, it seems similar to your project, Glenn. We started with one assumption and then as we go along, we're like, hold on, actually the likelihood ratios can be used Elsewhere, not just at the end to say this is how strong this match. Actually, we saw that well. Actually, this can be used in any other, um, different steps of the ACV process. So we we are look we are researching. I I would say how soon is don't be afraid, listener. It's <laughs> going to be coming to your door next tomorrow. But we're looking and really exploring where it's really be meaningful and useful. And, you know, in the conversations I've had with you over the last couple of years, you just said something a few minutes ago I want to highlight for the listener that I think is really important. You were talking about how APHIS could be used in other ways, and I think that's the thing that you've really changed for me, is I always saw APHIS as this giant database searching tool, and that's APHIS. That's, that's all APHIS is. And in working with you, you've been very clear that, you know, the mission with 3M Cogent has been, no, 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 
APHIS is an entire system and can be a case working management thing. It can be a case manager, it can be a documentation system, it can be a searching mechanism, it can be a verifier in some ways. It could be a quality assurance check. Now it potentially could be a statistical model in some ways. It can show the strength of a map. It could be the underlying data that you take to court. It doesn't just have to be a searching tool. Mm -hmm. It has the capacity to do so much more. Yes. Had the capacity, but again, without the focus, without the validation, without research to to prove it and how to implement SOPs, it it just right now all just theoretical, right? And at the end, we really need that collaboration together. How to implement makes sense to you? I can't. AFIS can't impose you. For me, AFIS as a system, the workflow should be flexible enough to for you to use it and not impose you a new way to do things. It must be helping in your process today. And, and, and incorporated within the ACP process. Correct. Oh, and that would be great. If, if, if APHIS can be expanded to to make the latent print examiner's lives easy, easier in, in so many ways throughout the entire process of comparison, um, yeah, I mean, it could fill in so many little things of, of, and instead of, you know, currently where we're, we have all this different data in different places written down in computers and Photoshop, in Microsoft Word and PDFs, if it could all be in the same place and all, uh, <laughs> Glenn, Glenn spoke on this last year at, uh, at IAI with his, his vision of the future. Integration of technology. We, Your unicorn app. You know, uh, Way back, one of our earlier episodes, we spoke with Steve Everest on this perfect right. system right. Uh, that we could envision. And uh, no, I think that's great that, that, that there are companies now looking to, to fill that need uh, and, and working with latent print examiners to give us what we need. Yeah, that's, Be- that's the nice part. And, but also finding those people that can tell us. Because so many latent print examiners, once they use it, they know that it's not quite right, but they don't know exactly what they want. And that's really been difficult, I think, for a lot of companies to fill those needs because like every vendor, yes, we can do that, but so many latent print examiners are bad at, at describing what they want, what do you, what they want technology mm-hmm. to do for them. Yeah, we, had, we, you, Teresa, and I had a lot of meetings where I would take screenshots and describe this, and I would put my words to it, and they'd go, oh, you meant blah, 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 blah. Right. Oh, okay, that's what that's called. We, we were speaking completely different languages, and they would, and, and Teresa often would have to teach me some of the engineering words that meant something to us as latent print examiners. And it is very much uh, cross-communication. Oh, absolutely. And, and that I have, again, like the 3M have an internal process and framework to do, do that. We call it voice of the customer, voice of the market. And I learned that through, like, uh, that this 3M world, that, that this method and structure really helped me because basically it's like, I, I can't just say, tell my engineering team, I want to build these features. They will come back, my manager will come back. Why this feature? How is this important? How does it meant to your user? Who's gonna use it? So it's really us forcing us to go out too to bridge that gap. And it's, I, I find it exciting. I, I'm really loving this new role that I'm doing. So. That's great. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really excited to see what 3M Cogent uh, is gonna be bringing here to the future and, and how my job is gonna change by, by with this, some of this technology and, and um, how 
Uh, not that it's going to, to, to change drastically to some new thing where the computer does all the work for us, but how this technology can be integrated into our process to provide better answers for court and to pr provide uh, you know, more, uh, more basis for our conclusions. Yeah, so. and, and ultimately, too, in the research, we found that, you know, that the system would have missed some, that, this, that the, the clear answer in the research was not to replace the human expert with the technology yeah. um, because you know, the, it, wasn't a perfect, it wasn't a perfect system and the, the human wasn't a perfect system. But integrating the two together in combination, I, I think, will be the best, the, the, the best thing going forward. Yeah. yeah. The AFIS help the examiner, the examination process more consistent because system is set up to certain ways. The consistency, you can rely on the system to be consistent. And then you can use the examiner expertise to deal with the most difficult cases, the, the limitation of the computation system. So yes. it's a good uh, melding the two together. I don't, I don't, I don't say marriage, but, you know, uh, but I would say it's really that collaboration together. That's um, great. Well, thank you, Teresa, for, for joining us, and thank you for th to 3M Cogent for sponsoring this episode of the Double Loop Podcast. And you're going to have an opportunity also to be at the IEI this year? Yes. In, in Minneapolis, do you have dates, and you're going to be at the booth? What do you, what do you, what? So, yes, I'll be in Minneapolis, um, the I parent IEI is going to be in Minneapolis, and uh, I'll be there, we'll, I'll be in the booth, and we'll be debuting the, the new CAFIS. Um People should come by and say hi to you. Yes, say, say hi, that you hear the podcast, and uh, and uh, I may give you a little surprise. I don't know how to about it yet, but <laughs> you mentioned the podcast. Come there by the booth, you get a prize. How about Ooh, that? I like that. A little, little challenge. Vendor prizes. That, that, why else would we go to? <laughs> the vendor for, say for swag. It. That's absolutely <laughs> it. It's a swag when you mention the podcast. And th thank you all for listening uh, to this episode. Um, you can listen for us every Tuesday morning. Uh, check for us on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or on iTunes. And uh, we're going to be signing off from beautiful, sunny, windy uh, Southern California, Riverside, California. And thank you to the, uh, the California State Division IAI for having such a great conference uh, and, and having us all out here for it. Uh, you know, great chance to all be in the same room together for this. So uh, thank you, everybody, and we will see you next week. Bye. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Glenn here. Need some training in the fall? Sure you do. Everybody needs some training. And this fall, I'm uh, instructing a course in Hillsboro, Oregon. And the course is Advanced ACB Applications for Fingerprint Examiners. Uh, this is a, a five-day class. Uh, it's being held September 8th through September 12th in Hillsboro, Oregon. If you're asking yourself, where is Hillsboro, Oregon? It's about 30 miles west of uh, Portland. So if, uh, if that sounds like a great time to you, I can assure you it will be a great time. Then why don't you go to Ron Smith and Associates and check out this class. Uh, they're still taking registrations for the class and we'd love to see you out there. So again, September 8th through September 12th, Advanced ACB Applications for Fingerprint Examiners, an advanced course on uh, decision making and uh, all the elements and nuances of ACB that you use every day in the laboratory. Come on out. We'll have a great time. Hope to see you there. Thanks, everybody. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.